Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. So it's a big day. It's uh, Super Bowl Sunday, and uh, sometimes that's what we're thinking about. But I really want us to turn our attention to God's Word today. Uh, There is a very important passage that we're going to be studying. So if you grab your Bibles and uh, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, and we're going to read 43 through 48. We're in a section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's very challenging. It, It speaks to us in the deepest ways. And so I'm looking forward to jumping into this verse. But first I'd like to... Uh, take a moment that talk a couple of minutes about maybe you've seen the movie that came out in 2014 called Unbroken. It had a a lot of fanfare and it was a a dramatic World War II movie but it's also a book by that same name and you might be familiar with the story and so this might just be a reminder a catch-up if you've never seen or read the book seen the movie or read the book uh, I'd encourage you to do that. It's a story about Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was an officer in World War II, and uh, he was uh, uh, in the Air Force, and so he would uh, take flights, and uh, he was a part of a reconnaissance uh, location, and there was missing planes and boats that they went out on a rescue mission for, and while they were flying, their own plane broke, down and crashed and so they spent what was at that time uh, kind of the the record of 47 days floating on the ocean fighting sharks and starvation and finally a warship spotted them and rescued them unfortunately it was a Japanese warship and Zapparini was taken to a prison camp a war camp on an, uh, an, an island where 80% of the prisoners died. But he survived and was transferred to another prisoner of war camp. And there he met a corporal. Uh, I, I won't say his legitimate name, but he was called the Bird. They found out that Zamperini was a captain in the U.S. Air Force and that he had run for America in the Olympics at, at the 1936 Olympics, the long distance So the bird took it upon himself to break Zamperini. He periodically beat him. He broke bones. He limited his rations of food. He made him work longer hours than other people. He would periodically uh, just harass and beat him. So the bird was breaking all the conventions of the Geneva Convention and all those kinds of agreements and wreaking havoc on Mr. Zamperini. After a long period of punishment and almost breaking uh, Mr. Zamperini, the bird, the corporal, was transferred. It was a high point for Zamperini. He was looking forward to it because it was a reprieve from all of this torture. And it was about a six-month period. They found out that the whole camp was being transferred to a a military camp where they were doing iron mining. And when they arrived to Zamperini's horror, 
the bird had become the captain of that camp and his torture resumed. And the, the amount of torture and punishment that he received in those years was just horrific. They thought he was dead here back at the States and uh, he was... He refused to cooperate with the bird in many of his uh, things. The bird would even, at one point, made him run a mock Olympics so that the Japanese runners would beat him. Because of these tremendous events in his life, he experienced great physical trauma and mental trauma. He was uh, ravaged by this hatred and torture that he experienced. This story, as we think about this, leads us to hear in a new way, I hope, or in a deeper way, the words of Jesus in this passage. Because in each of our lives, there are places where it is very difficult to do what Jesus says. And as I think about Louis Zamperini's life, I think it is very difficult to do what Jesus says. It is clear, the picture that we see of Louis Zamperini is one who did not and who could not at that time love his enemies which is what this passage calls us to do. So we're going to think about this passage. It is a passage that speaks to us at the deepest places of our hearts and lives. So let's look at this sermon, at this passage, and think about and understand what Jesus is calling for. Let's read verse 43 through 48 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sorry, I usually should prep you on that because we're we're just learning this new discipline. But we're saying thanks be to God because of the wonder of his word. So let's go to the Lord and ask him to bless his word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray for ears to hear and hearts that are open and lives that will be transformed by your instruction and your word and you living in us. Lord, we need you. We need you to teach us. We need you to transform us. We need you to live through us if we're going to follow and obey and hear these words today. Thank you for your presence here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in this passage, Jesus is concluding with instructions about how we are to live towards the world around us. 
And the rest of the sermon we will hear, starting at chapter 6, which we'll pick up on next week, more about our, our relationship with God, how our posture should be towards God before God. But this first part in chapter 5, when Jesus is talking about the law and how we are to live, how we are to respond. We've, we've heard about the, the value of marriage and the marriage commitment. We've heard about speaking the truth and being authentic. We've heard about what it means to have adultery in our heart and that it's not just about external behaviors. We've heard about loving our brother and that it's not just about, uh, it's not just about actions against them, but it's about our heart's attitude calling them a fool or a reka. Here, again, Jesus is speaking to us about our heart. This passage today will be challenging for us. We will not, like last week's message when we talk about de-escalation, that is not resisting the evil person when you're being attacked or, or you're experiencing negative reactions and anger and hatred from someone, you don't just de-escalate, though that is important. This one even takes us a step farther. This one says, verse 43, love your neighbor and hate your enemy is what it said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When we think about Louis Zamperini's life, when he came home, he had PTSD in a big way. It drove him to be an alcoholic. It drove him to the verge of destroying his marriage. There was mental anguish that overwhelmed him, and he could barely function as a person. At one point in his life, he would have... He had some dreams where he was obsessed with the bird and what the bird did to him. And in, in the night, he would dream about the bird. And he'd dream about the possibility of getting him in front of him and choking him to death. And then he would wake up, probably at the screams of his wife, because he was choking his wife in bed. And she was carrying their firstborn child. And because of those kinds of dangers and that kind of anger and aggression taking hold of Zamperini's life, she was filing for divorce. But Jesus gives us here a hard teaching, a hard teaching about something that we need to hear again and again. It is something we need to look at our lives and examine our responses in our lives and are we allowing Christ to live in us? And is it even possible in a situation like that? like the experience of Zamperini, to love your enemies. Are we walking with Christ and seeking his direction so that our hearts, our lives would respond in this way? Remember, the heart of Jesus' principles and teachings in the Sermon on the Mount is not a new list of do's and don'ts. It's not a list of moral reformations. Jesus is not talking about those things. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount speaks to us so deeply because he's talking about the attitudes, reactions, responses of our heart, who we are, the fundamental nature of the gospel and trusting in Jesus and being his people is that we are made new. And the question is, are we just being old people trying to do new principles or are we new people living in a new way? That's what Jesus is teaching us. 
and nothing hits us kind of straight away in our face more than asking, how do I respond to my enemies? Am I following the example of Christ? Following Jesus, we see that Jesus forgives and loves. We see Jesus' people are those who follow the example of Christ. We see Jesus loving his enemies. That is the high call of Jesus. But it's not something that we can just decide, oh, well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to follow that. None of us can do that. That's what's the underlying principle of the Sermon on the Mount. We can only do that when we recognize our brokenness, our inability, our, our, our incapacity naturally to do these things and that only by the life of God being poured into our lives, only by being fully in union with Jesus and Jesus living through us can we have any hopes of following Jesus' teaching and command. So let's look at this and see what Jesus is saying. I got two lessons for us out of this passage. Lesson number one, we must not distort God's command to make them manageable. I think this is one of the big challenges of the Sermon on the Mount. Because we hear such high calls, we're naturally thinking, well, it must be... Uh, must be explained this way. It must be reduced this way. It, it can't be that hard. That's impossible. That's the point. It's impossible for us to do. Only in union with Christ. Now, let's read verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, we might ask, where does it say that in the Scripture? Well, if we turn to Leviticus 19, verse 18, we find the first part, love your neighbor. After it tells us, do not seek revenge or bear a, a grudge among your people. Now, I know that if you read this verse in Leviticus, you will not see the words, hate your enemy. So where is hate your enemy coming from? It can't be found in the Bible. Now, some people say, well, maybe it's found in those extra biblical books or extra findings of writings that, you know, that we don't know about. Maybe we should listen. No, it's not in those either. And this is the only book we need to listen to. This is God's word to us. And it can't be found there. I think Jesus was quoting the common interpretation of the verse in Leviticus. And why did the uh, Israelites make this a common interpretation? Primarily because they were convinced that the context of Leviticus 19 concludes the definition that a neighbor is a fellow Israelite. And therefore they would not tolerate expanding that definition to other people. And there were some reasons why they probably thought of that. There was an intention, a direction of God for the people of Israel. But it was not just for the people of Israel. It was for Israel to be a light to the nations. But you know how we are when we get used to being with one another. We kind of get kind of ingrown and interested in ourselves. I remember as a kid being uh, in fifth grade. 
And I moved, we moved to Racine, Wisconsin. It was kind of a middle-class family uh, neighborhood, and we weren't very wealthy or anything, but we had these other neighborhoods just kind of close to us. And then we're wealthier neighborhoods. And then there were some, the Hispanic neighborhood. And, then, and when I was growing up, we used to have neighborhood rumbles. We're going to meet down at the field by the elementary school, and we're taking on that neighborhood. We're going to have a fight. And it was just like, you know, it's kind of a human nature thing. We like our kind of people. We don't like those kind of people. I don't know if you've experienced that, but I see that. And so it was natural for them to say, God's working with us, the Israelites, and we are to love one another because we are the people of God. But we're to hate them other people. This is not part of the scriptures. There were certain reasons that they might have developed that. There's some hard sayings in the Old Testament, like when they went into Canaan and, and, and got rid of the Canaanites, and that was God's action and his rightful judgment against those people. Or when the imprecatory Psalms, whether you know what those are, those are Psalms where sometimes they're really speaking against someone who is wicked or wrong, you know, those, those are kind of like kingdom ideas. That's like standing against what is wicked in the world. But it's not personal relationships. And so there was this hate those who are not part of us. The Qumran community sect even has this written in some of their, the findings of their scrolls, love the brother and hate the outsider. And this was even within the Israelite nation, those who were not a part of the Qumran community. The standard of love in Jesus' day was a limited one. It had definite boundaries. I will love only my neighbor, and it meant only my fellow Israelite, and I will hate everyone else. It should be noted that this didn't encourage a lot of uh, kind of vacations to Palestine in that day. It's different than our day, just so you know. This kind of misinterpretation, though, is dangerous for all of us. The Jews made it out that you can love your neighbor, but it was more manageable to say, but you can hate your enemy. And as I said, it's kind of a natural response of human beings. And we must be careful to hear God's word as it was intended to be, not to make God's uh, commands manageable, not to degrade them. Therefore, don't change them. Don't make it something that we can do. Sometimes today, we extend love on the basis of moral behavior of the people we know. If they act a certain way, we like them. If they don't, they're those kind of people. If they have a certain political point of view that we agree with, we like those people they don't have that political view, we're suspicious of those people. We don't want to get too close to them. And especially in the theological realm. If they don't believe the right truths about God, if they're teaching or preaching something that is erroneous, we should separate ourselves and, and, and criticize them, not, not, and they should be treated as enemies of the gospel. We justify a lack of love in the same ways. So we must not, we must not distort God's command so that they become manageable. Lesson number two, though, 
is Jesus teaches us to love without limits. Look at verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is supremely radical. Alfred Plummer, who writes a great commentary, said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil, that's divine. And I agree. I think that's so true. I think that's what the world needs to see from the people of Christ, from the church, that there is a demonstrable characteristic of the church that is of love and hope and extension of grace and life. That's what Jesus embodies. That's what we must embody. To love an enemy is not natural. To pray for an enemy or one that persecutes you, this has to be from another world. The fact that the text mentions enemies in the plural suggests that maybe Jesus is thinking specifically of people he's talking to who have at that moment enemies that are doing harm to them. And he's telling them to pray for them, to seek their good, to ask God's favor upon them, to give them direction. To everyone, the mere idea of loving enemies is kind of absurd and offensive and beyond our capability, our capacity. It demands, it demands the natural sense. It, it, it challenges the natural sense of right and wrong. But to understand God's law, the idea of loving one's enemy was completely contrary to the perception of God's law by the first century people. But Jesus' command to love without limits is a call that's pretty obvious. It's pretty straightforward. This is a revolutionary idea for sure. And whatever culture a person comes from, it sure is challenging. In fact, if practiced by you and me towards one another and towards the world around us, it will be revolutionary. In fact, that's what Jesus is calling for. The arrival of his kingdom through his people who have been changed and made new. So as Jesus' command to love without limits is a call to love everyone regardless of what they say to us and what they do to us. This is revolutionary. And I want to go a little farther in this text and look at two fundamental reasons why we should live this way. Reason number one is found in verse 45. It says, That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why should we love our enemies? So we can be like our Father who is in heaven. And Jesus, in this agricultural first century population, says, Notice, God sends rain on the just and the unjust. God gives sunshine to the just and the unjust. He does not parcel out on the, ba- on the basis of how they're responding to him. He is good and gracious. And I want my people to be good and gracious 
to the people they know, the people they encounter. Uh, even a certain rabbi, Joshua ben Nehemiah, noticed that you have noticed that the rain fell on the field of person A, who was righteous, and on the field of person B, who is unrighteous. And he goes on to say, because God gives to his people Israel rain and sunshine and to the nations rain and sunshine. Like we said, this this really speaks of common grace. And sometimes I'm a little frustrated that God is so gracious just indiscriminately, it seems. But we're all thinking about, or I have met some people who are not watching the Super Bowl today because they're just not interested. But it's a pretty small number. We're all thinking about watching the Super Bowl, most of us. And I'm looking at the wanting to watch the Super Bowl. I love football, as I've said before. I watch all the, you know, the, the, the breakdown of the, I can't remember what they're called right now, but uh, <laughs> the championship games for the NFC, AFC. Because it's amazing what you see sometimes as you, as these athletes are pushed to the limits, they perform in astounding ways. You'll see some play that you just cannot believe that happened because they're, they've been working in their bodies and, they're, and they've been very serious about it and they're really trying to accomplish things and they can achieve a lot as a team together. But did you know, when you think about it, that there are believers who really love the Lord that are playing in that game? I remember last uh, two weeks ago when the Ravens game was over, and I think it was uh, uh, the Buffalo team, or I don't remember now. <laughs> but there was a big group of guys that met together to pray. Now, there's a lot of committed Christians that are playing football. But just as well, on the other side, there are a lot of football players who have nothing to do with God. Yet God has indiscriminately given them gifts and it's not on the basis of their response they could be fully totally committed to ignoring God and thinking they're the center of the universe but God still was abundantly good to them so when we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us one reason we do that is to be like our heavenly father because he is abundantly good. So good will never outgive God. He gives so much. The second reason is in verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? What's the basis on which we love people? Are we loving people? because we're changed by the wondrous message of the kingdom of Christ, because we're in union with Christ, because his life is flowing through us and we love what he is doing in us, or are we loving just like the world? That's what Jesus is asking. I think of it as reciprocal love. The world traffics in reciprocal love, and the question for us is, are we trafficking in reciprocal love? You know, when someone thinks I'm wonderful and I meet them and they're telling me how wonderful I am, boy, I really like those people. But if someone thinks I'm terrible, I have a hard time being with those people. And that's because it's all reciprocal. 
And that's what Jesus is questioning. Everybody does that. The tax collector, you could say the drug dealer, the sex trafficker in our day, they do the same thing. What kind of love are we demonstrating? Jesus is calling us to something higher, something more pure, something otherworldly. That is a love of our enemy. The prayers for persecutors. You might say, boy, I like last week's sermon a little better. It was about de-escalating the situation. Because this, is, this, this, this text is really kind of another level. And it is. The reason it's another level is because it's focusing on what's springing up out of our heart in the most difficult situations. And is it seen? Are we experiencing this life of God springing up out of our heart? Or are we still modeling the world around us, practicing those behaviors? It's pretty hard to really like people who stand against you, to really love people who stand against you. No, Jesus meant, now meant, Jesus mentions not being willing. Now, Jesus, let me, let me just read the verse first. Let's read verse 47 because as deep as that takes us, as challenging as that takes us, there's one more level deeper. Verse 47. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. So when I read that verse, it really is challenging. Because I think what's happening here is you we're starting to see the breath of this command to love our enemies. So when I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, I can always read this and feel pretty good. I mean, I don't have enemies. I don't think there's people really out to get me and take me down, and I'm not out to get people and take them down. So, hey, I, I think maybe I'm handling this pretty good. Until you get to this verse 47. It says, if you only greet your own people. Now this, this, this worry, this situation with not loving people lavishly, not loving people without limits, now Jesus is pointing to some limits that really speak into my life. Am I willing to greet somebody? Am I willing to converse and to look for their good and to enter into their world even when they don't love me? Now that enemy idea is a little bigger, a little broader. And should I dare say that in the church, those relationships must be strong. We cannot have enemies in the church. And so when Jesus is giving us these words, the first thing that we should do is look at the church. Judgment, as the Old Testament says, begins at the house of God. And we should look at ourselves. And I know that in this church, there have been times and plenty of times where there are people in the congregation sitting on that side because they don't want to talk to people sitting on that side. 
And I know that there have been families, family units that will sit on opposite sides and will leave early or late or out a certain door so that they will not meet people in the church. And we could say, well, they're not really enemies. They just don't want to talk to each other. But this text says, if you greet only your own people, what's the relationship of this statement about love? Is it driven by the world of reciprocal love? Or is it driven by Christ? Divine love that goes by the barriers that invites and loves and longs for good even when someone is not necessarily kind to you or good to you or even persecutes you if we go all the way. The breath of this command is that we love fully. And so it's challenging for us. I know, since we're taking communion, of one person that told me that if there's a certain server serving communion and they come to the row I'm sitting in I'm not taking communion that day from that person this kind of anger and these kinds of enemies this kind of broken relationship in the church must be done away with if we're going to be a picture of Christ's kingdom together we don't have the luxury or the obligation. We don't have the freedom just to say, well, you'll sit on the other side of the room, I'll sit on the other side, and we'll just let things go as they are. The question is, will you do something about it? I believe that the presence of Christ and the love of Christ can fill us to meet any and every situation And I don't know too many people who in the face of love and willingness and genuine brokenness and desire for a relationship will continue to resist that relationship. I have a hard time believing that that could happen even amongst two Christians. And so the question is, will you take that step? Will you love that person? Too many times I've heard Christians, brothers and sisters say to me, you know how so-and-so has been treating me. I mean, who would ask me to do anything but treat them the same way as they've been treating me? And we have to say, you know who would ask you? Jesus would ask you. Jesus would say, love your enemies. Greet people because they are a part of the kingdom, because they are potentially part of the kingdom. Greet people, love people. That is the power of the kingdom. And Jesus displayed it, demonstrated it through his life, through his sacrifice on the cross, coming into a world that rejected him and loved his enemies. I love the phrase. Make your enemies your neighbors. That's what this text says. Love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Make those enemies your neighbors. Make everyone your neighbor. And then, of course, we kind of ends this section with that verse 48. 
Verse 48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I've come to a kind of a, a new understanding of this. And I meant to call Craig and find out because I've heard him say this. I don't know if it's the same. So we might have to debate afterwards. I'll still love him, though. Uh, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is not talking about be perfect, perform. Do everything absolutely right. None of us are going to perform and do everything right. Is that what Jesus is calling us to? Be perfect? Some standard, some perfection, some performance? No. He is actually the background in the Old Testament and its use and the semantic range of this word is best translated or thought of. Be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. There's only one other place in Matthew where this verb is, this word is used, and it's in that encounter with Jesus and the rich young ruler. And Jesus answers him when he says, How want I gain eternal life? And Jesus says, To be perfect, sell all that you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. Now, is that be perfect means be perfect, never make a mistake, never do? No, to be whole. To be complete. That is to be defined by the relationship you have with Jesus. And that's what he was inviting him to. Go sell all that you have and come follow me. Live out of the relationship you have with Jesus. Enter into the wholeness of the gospel. And Jesus is calling us to do that. To love without limits. Because Jesus is living in and through us. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. In conclusion, Louis Zamperini had a lot of reasons to be angry and revengeful. But in those moments when he was captivated by that anger and revenge and it was bringing destruction to his life, he went to a tent meeting where Billy Graham was preaching the gospel and he met Jesus there. And it changed everything. Zamperini trusted Christ for salvation. Jesus is the one who brings salvation. We will find life if we trust in him. He is the expression of God's love and reconciliation. And he is the Savior and Lord we all need. And based on what Louis Zamperini learned from Jesus, because he trusted Jesus, one year after returning, after trusting Christ, he traveled back to Japan. It's an amazing story. Traveled back to Japan to find the bird and all the other guards that were a part of the prison concentration camps where he was horrifically treated to tell them he loves them. He's praying for them and that Jesus can be their savior. When you hear of that, that example of Jesus taking the part of a person and transforming it so that he can deeply love his enemies, it is true for you. God can make that happen in your heart and my heart as we draw near to him. Who do we need to love with limitless love? 
Who do we need to confess resentment and anger and bitterness to so that our love can flow towards the people we know and we encounter? Determined to build bridges of relationship in your relationships and the people you know at work, at home, in the neighborhoods, the people in your life. Make it a top priority, even if it's a bilateral move. That means that they don't respond to you. You continue to pour out love to them. Because in this way, we are like our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good to us and gracious and loving. Lord Jesus, you bring life to us. And Lord, it's our longing to live in a way that reflects who you are, that demonstrates the reality of your kingdom and your reign and your rule in our lives. Lord, this, this is a tough saying. There are a lot of ins and outs there. But we pray that our heart's response will be first and predominantly one of love because that's your heart's response, even to us. And so, Lord, do live through us in this radical way. Help us to love, even in the most difficult circumstances and situations, only in your power. In Jesus' name, amen.